suddenly I'm falling. I'm falling upright. I was falling and twisting. I'm falling upright. I think there's something really poetic about pointless endeavors. Like so many things are pointless that are beautiful and amazing and but awesome. Yeah, that's exactly what you're speaking about. Just to you know, fill the like, time. Proust. Like we could be more pointless than what he wrote. Except for maybe reading it. But, you know, you read it, you read it, you read it, even if you just read an excerpt, and it's fucking amazing. You're like reliving somebody else's memories secondhand. Of like the most like banal things ever. And it's like, you know, it gives you shivers. But it's completely pointless. I think that having that freedom for pointless endeavors. I think it's wonderful. The complete feeling of space and nothingness. Nothingness. For this episode of Art Talks Montreal, I spoke to prolific Montreal print artists, Chloe Lum and Yannick Deranlou, who have worked together as Seripop for over a decade. Their creative collaboration started in the early aughts, around the time they both left art school and began playing in bands together. They eventually formed an experimental noise rock band, AIDSWOLF, and started making gig posters together as Seripop. AIDSWOLF toured relentlessly all over North America and Europe until they disbanded in 2012. Seripop's posters evolved into a very recognizable and unique visual style, and the duo got more and more design contracts. Over the past few years, Chloe and Yannick's work as Seri Pop has developed and taken on awesome new directions. They've covered walls and filled rooms with bright colored printed paper constructions and unimaginable configurations from Vancouver to Vienna. We sat down at their shared studio on the 12th floor of a tall building on Cosgrain Avenue. I began by asking Yannick to tell me an instance when he was deeply affected by a work of art. The one time that like, I walked out of an art show and I was like, this is like a complete shift, and I knew it, it was when I saw the Gary Hill retrospective. It's, uh, he does video work, it's really about words and language, but also it's really about uh, perception too. There, there's there's like kind of two main branches, like perception and then the language thing. And we're really into perception and language in our work. So. And at the same time, like one of some of his work, I saw is the trippiest thing ever. What was it about that show that you saw? Uh, well, there was especially the there's like a main one of the main perceptual pieces. There was Dervish, which was great, which is like basically a tower in the middle of a round room and just like. Uh, shoots a projection, but it's like of a fixed landscape. But there's also this other piece, I forget the name, which was like involving a strobe and like a projection that was just kind of getting like more and more bright, but it took like minutes. And then as soon as you could discern moving forms on it, it shut down and then doing this like super trippy thing. Um, but why did that affect you? What was it about seeing Well, because I... 
for for a long time i was kind of like wondering i was I, when i started kind of getting more into doing art i was kind of interested in uh, particularities of kind of reading uh, like forms what's kind of like consensus like in the consensus and like the human behavior and like you know the way you read form the way you read faces or like language like kind of roots of those things and you know how we kind of like bred ourselves to kind of uh, kind of respond to similar stimuli in a certain fashion yeah that's it yeah but like you know Gabriel was kind of the first time I saw artwork about that mm -hmm. I did not understand most of it but it well, affected I knew, you somehow I knew it was about that yeah and but the thing is is the response to his work is also very vis visceral and I thought that was key to understand the work because his pieces are like they're kind of stressful. and since then like I, since then I've always been interested in try to present work that has a very uh, strong phenomenological aspect if it's and that kind of, that hits you in the gut that's at, a, at the same time which i think actually like any really work that works on a phenomenological level is going to hit you in the gut you think i think so because like when you're like really it's well done <laughs> with the senses and like the you know the the perception mm -hmm. like yeah. well i mean if you achieve to do something that's really hitting people's perception. Yeah. Then I think you're also kind of hitting like some part of their lizard brain. That, I like you know? that idea. <laughs> because we don't fully understand how the things that we perceive around us, how we react to them, how and they affect us. why we react in yeah. the ways that we do. I mean. What makes us recoil, why we like certain smells, why a touch will. I'm talking about like all the senses. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think that's like the most exciting part about being an artist for me is that I can constantly ha see stuff that's gonna like totally amaze me and like feel like it's rewiring my brain and that's just like a reason to, to do stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah. And like if I can, if we can do something that's just like a fraction of like that that kind of feeling we get on seeing other people's work, then I'll be pretty pleased. Yeah. I went and saw the Looming, your Looming show mm -hmm. in Toronto at the YYZ Space Gallery. Uh, and I thought it was fucking awesome. And I stayed there a long time and I went to see it um, several times. And awesome. to me, I'll tell you what it meant to me, <laughs> but then you'll tell me what it meant to you. Okay. Uh, I don't know, I was just having fun sitting there and thinking. I think I asked the lady if I could drag a chair in there and I walked around a whole bunch. Um, it felt like, to me, what my brain will feel like at like 2.30 in the morning when I've been in front of that screen for way, way, way too long. And I just, I really, I read into it. There was a big, huge black hand in the corner in this mess of construction that you could kind of get lost in, not climbing, I didn't mm -hmm. climb into it, but like my eyesight, I was looking into it, I walked all around. Um, and for me, that hand was just my hand that keeps on going. And it's, um, it's my tool on the internet. It's rendered super huge in this space. And then all of the papers that were like ripped off the wall, it was the billion tabs that I'm able to like open or close. <laughs> it's, it's my own thing. But yeah. I, I, I like that. I liked being in a frenetic um, physical space that sort of mirrored how I feel inside when I'm totally passive in front of a screen. And then the fact that it was made out of paper and that it was so material and yet somehow reflected back onto my interiority. 
But what what was that show about? Well, that's pre-app. Actually, I mean, um, the way we approach, like, in terms of what the show was about, I mean, it's really more and like it was much more directed on our own process and the way we could organize space and kind of um, basically kind of linguistic or you know kind of semiotic issues of just kind of putting objects together mm -hmm. it was, so it was a really really formal really really formal exercise we should describe it like the walls were completely papered the floors yeah. there were several layers it was a huge construction yeah. there was a couple things hanging mm -hmm. there was some Thing on the, the walls. Yeah. Yeah. Like but the main, the, the main part of it is the way it was arranged. Is as you entered the space, you saw the display. And this display, and there's this kind of perception of death that was not really happening, even though it was there. And um, you had to go and really kind of go around the exhibit to see the whole thing, because some objects were hidden. Yeah. 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 And it looked different depending on where you went. That's space. it. Basically, the. Um, well, I, I think your I think your interpretation is apt because in a certain way, like uh, since it was partly so uh, aiming to kind of document our own process of installing the show, like because we did like a lot of actions that were completely useless in a way. <laughs> like, oh yeah, <laughs> but like it was in planned. mounting the show. It, oh yeah, yeah. In, but that was it was planned like that. It was kind mm -hmm. of like we were putting those. We put this time constraint and filled it with activities. And just see, uh, just in order to see how the material would like sustain those kind of different actions. And, and you know, these actions were like set to kind of provoke different reactions and different mistakes and possible failures <clears throat> that would then be like a beginning point for other actions. And some of the actions like were like so labor intensive and did not do anything at all. Like there were certain things that we had to have like four people helping us and spent like hours doing that like, you know, we could have totally cheated and just like tore the thing and tacked it on. Like, you know what I mean? Like there was all these like levels of, of pointless labor in order to create like possible reactions but we didn't know that these things would happen or not until we until we did it you said somewhere that you guys are obsessed with modernism and making playful jabs at your own failure vis-a-vis -vis modernism could you speak about the role of failure and modernity and how those play together in your work first of all like say that our our prime like interest in modernity is like with the minimalist and post-minimalist sculpture oh, oh and but uh, also a mid-century modern architecture pre-brutalism uh, like this kind which of which just has a very similar like, uh, aesthetic the, to to minimalist sculpture international style like they're very kind of humanistic like idealist stuff like Cobbusian. like we're really interested in how the body navigates through space and how different objects affect your perception of space and you know when you're thinking of like that era of architecture or like minimalism and post-minimalism you're thinking of like steel and concrete and granite and and you know they're very these these very rigid things that you know you you yield to them well you know what if we do our forms out of paper where the paper not only yields to 
the viewer, but it yields to itself, it yields to its condition of display. We're really interested in like, not only the conditions of viewership, but the conditions of the object <clears throat> itself and like having the object have agency. And when you have something that's like pliable, that you have something that is ephemeral, that object I think has a lot, a lot of potential agency because you know maybe it's gonna stay this perfect shape, mm -hmm. and maybe it's gonna crush, and maybe it's gonna get, you know, brushed against just so slightly. And, I mean, and you know, it's just paper has this like plasticity to it where any kind of conditions can change it. I think that's where I was thinking of modernity, where they wanted to push, 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 push so much in the use of one material to see what it could do, like the work about the work itself in a way. Yeah, like where you're like kind of pushing against the limitations, mm -hmm. but embracing the limitations. Yeah, and seeing everything that you can do with this one thing. Yeah, the, and the failure thing works into because it's paper and because there's all these limitations, you as artists, when you are putting this up, you're you're, you're playing with that, you're seeing, and that's yeah, a part of Well, the failure, I think, relates a lot of to, a lot of, uh, it relates a lot to um, this level of self-awareness when, uh, as an artist, and this kind of level of criticality that you apply just by uh, stepping back and looking at things. And in a certain way, uh, I mean, as like wavy gravy that is, like I think it, uh, that might sound, uh, I, I, I think that in a way it does provoke a lot of kind of advancement and like uh, also adds complexity to, um, you know, interventions or any kind of art Yeah, because objects. you can always use what goes wrong as a starting point for your next but it sounds, intervention. as you said, you, you make room for things to actually go wrong. You give yourself extra Well, that's time. it. And at the same time, it's because, because you assess that. In a certain way, I think this has to be kind of apparent in the kind of work you set up. And yeah, like, it, it means that we, we set up these objects to have their actions that may or may not take place. Like, we, we've been explaining ourselves a lot lately. It's like, we see ourselves as setting up these, like, Rube Goldberg devices where, you know, you have these chain reactions that make different things go off. Like that video that was at the Mac for a really long time? The way yeah. things go. That yeah, was exactly. really cool. That's a Rube Goldberg device. Okay. And, you know, you have the one in Back to the Future. It's the like breakfast a, machine, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's so a classic one. We kind of set up, like... Things that are gonna like, you know, maybe fall onto this, and then if that happens, maybe. But if it doesn't happen, it's okay too. You know, we really like to like embrace like any kind of possibility and not necessarily push things to happen. We try to like be playful and we try to kind of push the limitations of the material. And Tell me about uh, making the kind of work that you make, which are these huge installations that people probably can't take home and set up in their living room. Like you guys are artists, but your art isn't necessarily com commodities that sell. How do you fit into an art market or do you at all? I mean, we're not really concerned with the art market per se. Like, you know, there's the system of artist run centers and public galleries that 
helps or it helps you continue to do what you do without having to as think much about as we it. say that we do have a gallerist i mean yeah we do but <laughs> we don't spend a lot of time we spend our time thinking about how to make well, interesting that's, that's well, what is your relationship do for you huh? okay, your relation our relation with our gallerist is much more at like a institutional like a research level. kind of institutional level you know that that's that's where like kind of like our exchange comes ends up to instead of like kind of like looking for buyers and yeah this kind of thing we're more kind of like he can represent you and talk about you and then maybe bring a massive installation of your work to some show or exactly okay that's basically it okay we have a good situation with with our with our gallerists. We're we're able to be more concerned about doing interesting work than worrying about how stuff is going to sell. How did you guys get a gallerist? You decided to do that, or it, I mean, it happened. He, he came to us. Yeah. Okay. You know, we we wouldn't have known how to <laughs> how to set that up. <laughs> Why did you decide to go back to school? Why did the both of you, where does that come from? Because you were doing well as poster makers, as designers, I imagine. I mean, what does that mean? What does it mean? <laughs> were you earning a living? Like, how were you making a living no, in barely. the 2000s? We were barely earning a living. You were barely earning. You we were, were doing design contracts and playing music. Yeah, and printing for other people. And we were working all the time and barely making ends meet. Yeah. You so know? it didn't seem worth it. Or not. I mean, actually, the, the more recognition we got for doing the posters and the design, the less money we were earning. How does that work? Well, the music industry was falling apart. Bands aren't going to pay to get record covers made when no one's buying records. That's true. People aren't get paying to make tour posters when the price of gas has gone up five times. And mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like. Yeah. The, the things that made us it difficult for us to be in a band started making it difficult for us to make money doing design for music. <laughs> but also, we weren't really interested in uh, that kind of like freelance hustle thing, uh, the design uh, that's like kind of uh, part of the design world because it's really demanding in a way it basically means working 60 hours a week to like l like earn sustenance wages that's it <laughs> so at least you were working that many hours a week but you were somehow doing it for yourself and making decisions and like right now uh well i mean no we stopped doing it so that if we were gonna have to work all the time we would be doing it for ourselves that's it i mean we were technically doing it for ourselves but there's this, this there's always this, i mean there's always because you're working for clients there's this compromise part all yeah, the time yeah. as much as like it was always kind of established that we'd have carte blanche you still end up doing stuff for mm. other stuff that you don't necessarily want to associate yourself Talk going back to me. school is like kind of a way to get like a paid residency to just immerse ourselves in theory and research so you were going to do what you were going to do anyway and somehow going to school gives you that Going to school gives, gave us a lot of freedom and structure to, to do that. Okay. And you don't feel like you're working just as much as you were when you were freelancing now that you're in school, like writing the oh, papers and being there. we're working just as much. We're working as much, but it... Uh, there's it less feel, bullshit involved. There's less bullshit involved and it feels more personal and it feels like we're more working towards something than like kind of running on a wheel for sustenance. 
I mean, for all the like, you know, problems and limitations that you can encounter in the in the art world, and you know, or being an artist, and you know, like the, the idea of the of... like artist as like complicit with like certain systems, I think it's still like the still better than having a nine to five. Well, I mean, I was gonna say that it's like probably the most yeah, like it's the way. It's probably the only way to really sustain like a alternative kind of lifestyle, you know. Mm-hmm. Not that all artists do that, but no, know. I think some go complete have a nine to five. Oh <laughs> yeah, I mean we know to... we know plenty of artists who have I mean, like a very artists, like yeah. kind of bourgeois life, and I'm not even judging that. Like mm-hmm. I so, I sometimes envy it, but you know it's it's a place where you can actually be a weirdo. And have your like idiosyncratic interests and research obsessions, and have still a place for yourself in society. Yeah, society definitely needs engineers, and they definitely need like registered nurses. And do you think society needs artists? I don't know. What about you? I think artists need society way more than society needs artists. Yeah, no, that's true. But at the same time, I think like at a narrative level uh you know when you go through like life or through physical space it always there's something about like just kind of like the environment being around being less boring i mean and the kind of object making thing that involve that artists are involved with i think they're contributing to making it less boring I mean, that's a really kind of simple and like really kind of positive view of like artists and it kind of mostly aims at this kind of comprehension of like, you know, my mom as of an <laughs> artist. But I think it's true because this kind of speaks to probably the most kind of common idea of what artists do and the way they impact life. And either I think, you know, like she said, like you could get rid of them and like... Uh, people that life would go on but it just kind of adds a little bit of spice I guess <laughs> you know I mean especially it. if we're gonna have a wide view of artists and like accompany, <clears throat> uh, like use it to, to define like writers and musicians and you know any kind of person who does creative stuff then like yeah things would be a drag if you had no novels or no movies and it's true you know everybody is just wearing like beige like potato sacks because there was no like clothing designers and stuff um that that would probably be pretty dull but when i when i was answering the question initially i was really thinking on like contemporary visual art which okay i'm not really sure that there's a need for that but i don't but i also i'm not concerned i'm not a concerned about that either but at the same time like okay even if society doesn't need artists like does that mean that artists should stop existing i don't think so i mean society there's a lot of things that society has that it probably doesn't need the problem is now we're too far gone man with all this fucking uh cultural theory that got written in the 60s and 70s well, about the role of artists. I think that it's pretty it's too clear late. We're stuck with them. When you look around of like what humans make, what humans do, what humans consume, that 
a lot of what we're into as a species is kind of pointless. You know, why do we need second life? Why do we need fucking... Who knows? But it's cool. <laughs> I mean, that's why we need it, because it's fucking cool. Because we can do all this shit. Because, yeah. like, you know, deer can't do that. Fucking pigeons can't. I mean, up till the 1850s, most humans lived, were born, lived, and died about like in a radius of like something like 15 kilometers. Oh, that's amazing, isn't you know? it? And they died really young too. They died at like 40 or 50. Yeah, before 15. Yeah. And you know, as soon as they were able to get past that, well, they fucking took advantage of it. And well, and we live way too long. Of it, but we hey. gotta do. We gotta fill up those years with something. Yeah, yeah. there's some excess here. Well, that's it. We gotta consume, make more things. And to chances consume. are, like, we're gonna live well beyond our nineties. I have a terrible world that's falling apart, Ugh. but still, <laughs> we will. Okay. Uh, gotta find something to do with yeah. all those years. My name is Yania Lee, and you've been listening to an Art Talks Montreal conversation with Seripop duo Chloe Lum and Yannick Deronlou. The sounds were from Aids Wolf Chicha Chatter and The Falling Suite from Delia Derbyshire's The Dreams. Talk to you soon. <laughs>